interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Matt and I conclude a special two-part episode where we take a look at 10 issues we're watching for 2020. Some of these issues include the convergence of compliance with the three released compliance evaluations from the Department of Justice, the ISS suit against the Securities and Exchange Commission, the ethical edge, what it means for businesses, and of course, data, data, data. How are you using data in your best practices compliance program? I've linked to articles Matt and I have posted in the show notes so you can have some additional reading. Check it all out. This episode is not only very interesting, but it's a ton of fun as Matt and I get to put on our pontificating mask and look into that veiled land of the future. I hope you'll join us again next week where we take up part two of this special two-part series on 10 issues to look forward to for compliance professionals and compliance programs in 2020. Thanks so much for listening. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for part two of our 2020 look forward into the veiled land of the future with some issues that we think are going to be important for the compliance practitioner. Uh, Matt uh, blogged about this about uh, last week, and it inspired me to do the same uh, as well. And now we're podcasting on it. So, Matt, welcome back. So, Matt, as uh, the next point we wanted to take up, you start with the title of Effective Sanctions Compliance Programs, but it seems to me you just use that really as a starting point to discuss um, a wide variety of issues, including uh, compliance programs, including uh, the Department of Justice and OFAC and how they both might think through compliance programs as well as enforcement action. So uh, what does uh, that, why do you think that's so important for a compliance practitioner going forward? Well, I I think this is going to be interesting to watch because in 2019, we saw a lot of action on guidance around sanctions programs. And uh, first, I think it was back in late May or early June, OFAC published its own guidance about effective sanctions compliance. And it was probably the most interesting piece of guidance we got all year long, Uh, even better than more newsworthy than the Justice Department guidance about effective compliance programs generally, because that was a version 2.0 of what we already kind of widely understood. But this OFAC guidance was really very interesting unto itself, and we hadn't seen that before. Then at the end of the year, I want to say in early December, the Justice Department expanded its cooperation policy that we've already had around the FCPA and other issues for several years now, expanded that to include sanctions issues. So I'll start back with the the Justice Department and the cooperation policy for sanctions. That unto itself is not necessarily anything news. Uh, You have to voluntarily self-report. 
You have to cooperate in the investigation. You have to remediate the weaknesses. You've already had to do that for FCPA. Conceptually, it's not a big jump that you would have to do the same for sanctions compliance if you want to get credit there, except part of the remediation prong from the Justice Department is that you have an effective compliance program at the time of resolution. Well, an effective compliance program for the Justice Department is one thing, but we already now have this much more extensive description of effective compliance from OFAC for sanctions. And the Justice Department even included a little footnote, and footnotes tend to be what we trip over. Um, It was a footnote that said the evaluation of compliance programs may be done in coordination with civil agencies like OFAC. So how is this going to work? And I don't know how it's going to work, but I would love to see some sort of enforcement action in 2020 where the Justice Department and OFAC walk through, here's how somebody won credit, here's how somebody had an effective compliance program for sanctions, and here's how it satisfied OFAC's guidance and Justice Department looked at it and said, yep, we also agree. Um, Because we don't have that sort of discontinuity in FCPA world. SEC and Justice Department have always been lockstep in what sanctions programs or what compliance programs should look like and how they should work. I'm not saying OFAC is dancing to its own tune entirely, but you know they're they're on separate paths, and I'm curious to see how that would fit together. My hope is that in 2020 we will see an example of that that we can all study. I guess the other thing your point here brought up for me, Matt, is uh, in addition to the two compliance programs you referenced, one from the criminal division and the second from OFAC. Um, or evaluations of compliance programs. We also had one from the antitrust division, and I've been thinking a lot about those three in the context of the convergence of compliance and wondering if instead of having trade sanctions compliance and a corruption compliance and a money laundering compliance and a trust compliance, one day we'll just have compliance and the compliance professional and the compliance practice will really need to be able to address a wide variety of of uh, legal related issues. Do you see that us moving in that direction or do you see something else? I think ultimately I, we will move in that way. Um, because think of the converse, somebody somewhere show me that we are not moving that way where different regulatory agencies are still looking for very siloed, different expectations on compliance. Um, I don't see that. They all say if you want favorable treatment from us, you have to voluntarily self-report. You have to cooperate. You have to have an effective compliance program. Um, They're all moving in that direction. The thing that sticks out with me, like let's take the antitrust compliance, which also I thought was quite newsworthy for 2019, but the antitrust division is part of the Justice Department. I assume that they had a lot more close coordination there about what their cooperation and guidance policies would be than the Justice Department and OFAC, which hangs out in the Treasury Department. Um, And OFAC, I don't believe it ever actually formally had any sort of compliance guidance before. As I understand it, antitrust did have guidance that basically they weren't going to care unless you were the first one in. Okay, that's changing, but, you know, that's all still housed in justice And the SEC and the Justice Department, they've always worked hand in glove around FCPA compliance. Um, The sanctions compliance, I think, will get there eventually. But as of right now, this is still a very new thing with two very separate bodies trying to work hand in hand. And 
So that's why out of all of this, and I think what you're saying is spot on, but out of all of it, this is going to be the most interesting sort of how do we make this work issue in 2020. That's going to be sanctions. So the next issue you raised, Matt, was uh, one that uh, we really haven't spent a lot of time on, but I absolutely agree with you. Not only is it one of the most fascinating issues uh, that's come around, but I think in the SEC world, it will be a very important issue as well. And that's the institutional shareholder services lawsuit against the SEC. Um, The ISS is a uh, proxy advisory firm, and if you follow uh, the SEC at all, you know they – uh, make lots of diff- ISS rather makes lots of different commentary, but I was wondering if you could uh, maybe flesh this out a little and explain for our audience who may not know what a proxy advisory firm is. At the end of this podcast, listeners, I assure most of you still you won't need to know what a proxy advisory firm does. But what it actually does is it works with large institutional funds that might own shares in thousands and thousands of companies and has to they have to vote on thousands and thousands of proxies. Um, They rely on advisory firms such as ISS, which is the largest one by far. Um, They rely on those advisory firms to tell them how they should vote. And so proxy advisory firms certainly do carry a lot of weight. So they might recommend – and most recommendations are followed. um, They might recommend that funds vote against a CEO pay package. Uh, they might vote against certain board directors uh, that are up for uh, renew- renomination to the board, something like that. Um, if you have frayed uh, relations with a proxy advisory firm and its investor fund clients, like as a company, you're you're in a difficult situation. Um, a lot of companies do not like proxy advisory firms. They basically say, "Who are these people?" What if they get something wrong? How do I get to review what they're saying to make sure that their recommendations are based on correct advice and correct analysis, things like that? Um, So the SEC in August voted to put new restrictions on what proxy advisory firms should or shouldn't be able to do. And they've had that vote in August. And then the ISS turned around and filed a lawsuit against the SEC in October. Uh, alleging that the SEC really misinterpreted the role ISS plays in the proxy advisory world. And also, and I think this is the key part, they accused the SEC of violating the Administrative Procedures Act while SEC staffers were drafting these rules for advisory firms. That's the thing. That's what I want to watch for in 2020. As this case proceeds in the federal courts, are we going to see any judicial review of how the SEC is making its rules. And that's where, as I said before, you don't have to get hung up on the advisory firm case, but get hung up on, are we going to have a close judicial look at what the SEC is doing as it is promulgating new rules? Because Jay Clayton is working on a clock now. He may very well be out of a job by 2020. He By November, he may very well not want a second term, even if there is another Trump administration in 2021. He's got a lot of rules he wants to put out. He's going to have a lot of people threatening to sue him, and they're going to sue on grounds of faulty analysis and faulty adherence to the Administrative Procedures Act. And the ISS is one of the first cases against the Clayton-led SEC uh, where we're going to see this put to the test. So I want to see if that, how that goes, but for example, an issue closer to compliance officer's heart was the proposed reforms to the SEC whistleblower program 
those were basically the whistleblower lobby quietly told Jay Clayton and the SEC, if you put these things forward, we're going to sue you. Don't do it. And they haven't done it yet. They're reworking these rules. I think they'll see some new version of them early this year sometime. But um, the prior during the Obama administration, we saw the U.S. Chamber of Commerce file a lot of lawsuits against the SEC then. We are now seeing the reverse come home to roost for the Trump administration's SEC. And this ISS lawsuit is probably going to be one of the first cases coming along where we see what the judicial branch will have to say about all this. And that's what I want to look for in 2020. So, Matt, there were uh, some things that uh, really struck my eyes and uh, uh, were either related to, I think, or um, kind of bled off from some of the points you raised that I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on. Uh, We have seen over the last certainly couple of years, uh, 2016, 2017, and through up to this year, uh, a change in the enforcement uh, policy of the Department of Justice towards the SEC, uh, most notably with the 2017 change with the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Some have called this uh, Rod Rosenstein's lighter touch. Um, Brian Binkowski, Matthew Minor, and perhaps some others from this current Department of Justice have said they want to um, increase the public-private partnership in the anti-corruption fight. But it does appear that the Department of Justice is moving towards um, less severe penalties, uh, more declinations along the lines of the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Kind of after a couple of years, do, do you have any thoughts on what direction, uh, if any, the DOJ may be going, or or all of those uh, analysis perhaps uh, have some truth in them? I think that this is the way the Justice Department is going. I actually I don't really have any philosophical problem with the idea of encouraging better compliance with bigger carrots as opposed to encouraging compliance through the threat of harder sticks. So I think this is a perfectly fine way to do it. Um, What I would be curious about eventually is what happens to a company that has had a declination for some reason and then has another instance of misconduct. So would we see like a second declination if – by you know, if you agreed that you had an FCPA action, you took all the right steps, you get a declination to prosecute, and two years later we find out, well, actually your compliance program didn't work like we thought because you had the same problem again. But how would that happen? How would that fit under this cooperation policy? Because I would say by definition you can't really meet that remediation prong a second time because you didn't meet it the first time. So how would that happen if we have a repeat offender? And Tom, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that we've seen that since the new cooperation policy has gone into effect. And you know, one question I do have is I think if the Trump administration continues, God help us all, but if it does in the, into a second term, this whole approach is going to continue. But I actually think this approach would continue even with a lot of democratic administrations. So if we're moving into this more cooperation, rewards for cooperating and having good compliance, if that's going to be a permanent fixture, how do we deal with repeat offenders in that world? But I mean, like, has anybody encountered this yet? I don't know. So in terms of repeat offenders, we have not seen a company that received a declination 
uh, have to go through as a recidivist or second time uh, offender under the new corporate enforcement policy. Obviously, we have seen a couple of recidivist uh, conduct, but the distinction there is that uh, if you had a cease and desist order, for instance, from the Securities and Exchange Commission or deferred prosecution agreement, there were real sanctions for violating either one of those. And the government had a much stronger hammer over you. If you've got a declination, um, there is nothing the government could point to that says, well, you know, you've agreed to not to do this once in a court order. Uh, we only gave you a declination previously. But the uh, your point on uh, the effectiveness of remediation uh, would clearly be uh, lacking. And the, my guess would be there would be some sort of greater penalty the second time around. I, I can't imagine the DOJ would give a second declination. Also, to your point about uh, this move by the Department of Justice, sort of regardless of the whoever sits in the White House, I think is absolutely spot on. Uh, as we saw, the reason I, I mentioned 2016 but was because that was the FCPA pilot program, which was a precursor to the 2017 corporate enforcement policy. Obviously, that came out under um, a, a Democratic administration. And so the, uh, the move by the Department of Justice itself uh, towards this different type of enforcement, I think, has been uh, going on for some time. Uh, having both of us said that, I think we have to acknowledge, you know, last year was the biggest, highest fine ever in FCPA cases. And now that's largely around two, two, two distinct or two, only two enforcement actions. But it also shows me that uh, when circumstances warrant it, the DOJ will come down uh, with a hammer. Um, but in some of these other actions, we do see this different type of enforcement focus. And, you know, for all of this talk here, as we're talking about whether the DOJ will or won't come down on a hammer, um, the SEC has been coming down with you know, fairly significant hammers all through 2018 and 2019 on FCPA issues on the books and records side, uh, even when there was a declination. And so I do think that as much as I am in favor of the SEC's, uh, the Justice Department's lighter approach, I have some misgivings over time, but we'll see. Um, but generally, it's okay. Like, there's clearly a subgenre of enforcement in the SEC that's going to persist. And the books and records stuff is hard to sort out. So it, that's like the trickier part of this in FCPA compliance is still there. And the SEC has made clear before, commissioners from time to time, that you know they, they don't care about what the Justice Department is doing. They'll enforce. They'll put on a monetary penalty. We've seen that. So that's going to be – I think that also is going to continue no matter what the Justice Department does. Matt, next one of the themes I saw in uh, 2019 was more talk by the Department of Justice about data and your compliance programs. And you do a lot of work in data analysis. You write lots of reports around companies that specialize in data. Uh, you are around data quite a bit. I've, I've seen posts from you where – uh, you've heard compliance practitioners wonder about what does this data mean and, and what am I looking at? Um, but I see compliance practitioners really needing to get a much better handle around the data within their own company as the government expects them to do that and incorporate that data on an on continuous improvement basis back into your compliance program. Do you see that with data or perhaps something different? No, I, I absolutely do see that. And I think one of the more mod notable speeches in 2019 came from 
I think it was Matt Miner, the deputy assistant to AG, who just left the Justice Department last week. But I think it was back in September he was giving a speech, and he basically said the Justice Department is doing much more with data analytics to find irregularities. So therefore, if we can do it in the government sector, you in the private sector with better resources, you can do it too. And he's right. Uh, because however the Justice Department might do it, the private sector generally has more budget and discretion to be able to do these things. They have antiquated technology in government compared to us. Um, so how will that actually work? I think the healthcare sector, for example, around fraudulent billing, um, they've been trying to do a lot around data analytics for quite some time. I remember Matt Miner was giving his speech about analytics specifically around commodities trading. And there is reams and reams and reams of data generated in commodities trading and commodities firms will need to be able to get their heads around that. Um, how you would take some of that, like, you know, there's reams of data on commodities trading. There is reams of data for every company involved in Medicare and Medicaid billing. Um, how would you find reams and reams of data in your ongoing processes. If you're not in a highly regulated industry, that's a question of mine. I don't doubt that the analytics capability is there. It's going to be a, more of a question of what's the actual data we have to generate and then how do we figure out how to analyze it. Once we know how to do it, the tech is going to be there to do whatever you want. It's just you're going to have to know what you want. And that's that's a big ask, I think, for some people trying to get their hands around good risk analysis, risk metrics, and uh, risk management. So about this last point is uh, sort of near and dear to my heart. You've heard me talk about this. Uh, you've actually written about it, and I cited it to some of your work on this. And that's what I see as uh, compliance as an ethical edge or uh, effective compliance programs equating better business process and equating to uh, greater ROI or greater corporate profitability. Last year was the first year we saw the Ethisphere world's most ethical companies uh, have a delta of uh, greater than uh, 10% above the standard and poor's average. Uh, you took a deep dive into that in a couple of different blog posts, I think, and, and actually sliced and diced that number down a little bit further uh, to show uh, some other uh, returns that uh, companies who received that designation um, had uh, above uh, standard and poor's or other averages. But I see that conversation is something starting off uh, in 2020 and really going uh, perhaps further into the decade of how can we move the discussion of compliance from a cost center to an actual profit-making part of the business. Any thoughts on that? I think it is fundamentally true that companies that are more ethical are better business performers, not necessarily because they are such you know moral philosophers on the job or anything like that i I think um, the best way to describe it is people who are ethical on the job who have a strong culture of ethics and compliance it's more that they are interested in doing the right thing, and part of that is let's make sure we don't break the law, but doing the right thing can be a very versatile and expansive phrase. And they're, I honestly do believe they're more interested in working with management to say, here's what works well. Here's what doesn't work well. We understand you came up with a great plan, but it doesn't square with the reality. 
and we're comfortable bringing that bad news to you and you're comfortable hearing it. Like there is that reciprocity and that cycle that goes on about good communication. And if you have it, then sure, you're going to be more upfront talking about if we do it this way, we're going to break the law. But you'll also be more upfront saying if we do it this way, it's just not smart. It's just not wise, even if breaking a law has got nothing to do with a bad management plan. Um, people who are more ethical, I think it's more that they care about the success of their company in many different ways. Um, that's not going to change. I don't think that I, – I mean if people can prove it statistically like Ethosphere is trying to do, I love that. That's great. But it just – it makes a certain intuitive logical sense. And so I think that is going to endure. I think the more that we can quantify it and spread the word about that, that's fine. And compliance officers can seize on that point because it will make it easier to demonstrate the business case for why a good ethical culture pays off in many different ways. But like that, that's what I think is afoot there. So Matt, this has just been a, uh, a ton of fun for me in these two podcasts. Maybe uh, we could revisit these topics at a six-month or at the end of the year to see uh, not only the quality of our prognostications, but where some of these uh, topics may have or issues may have taken us. I think that's a great idea. Well, Matt, I'm looking forward to uh, what we come up with next week. All right, Tom. Take care. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions of Matt, you can email him at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I link to both Matt's blog post and mine in our show notes. So if you want additional information, check it out. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.